ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. Hi, I'm Jesse Cruikshank. Jesse Cruikshank. I host the number one comedy podcast called Phone a Friend. Girl. Let's phone a friend. Not only do I break down the biggest stories in pop culture with guests like Dan Levy and members of InSync, I do it with my own personal boy band singing jingles throughout because it's my show. It's your show, girl. New episodes of Phone a Friend. Yeah. Drop Thursdays wherever you get your podcasts. So work it, girl. Yeah, work it. Okay, that's enough. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com. If you enjoy listening to the LRB podcast, then you'll probably enjoy reading the LRB. You can subscribe to the LRB from just £1 per issue. To find out more, go to lrb.me forward slash listen. That's lrb.me forward slash listen. Or click on the link in the description below this episode. Hello, and welcome to the London Review of Books podcast. My name is Thomas Jones. Today I'm speaking with my colleague Deborah Friedel, a contributing editor at the LRB, who has a piece in the new issue of the paper on America's guns. It's a review of an unauthorised history of the National Rifle Association, the NRA, by Frank Smith, published by Flatiron Books earlier this year. Hello Deborah, and thank you very much for joining me. Hello Tom. Guns have a place in American culture and American life that can seem quite alien to a, to a foreigner, to a European for example, seeing the images of heavily armed men outside the Wisconsin state capitol, heavily armed civilians, not policemen, not soldiers, demanding an end to the lockdown a few months ago was striking, to say the least. Of course, it didn't look normal to many Americans either. But the idea that something like that could be legal, I still find hard to get my head around. Did you grow up around guns, among gun owners? Uh, no, uh, my, my family never kept guns, though it it is true that when I was growing up, I often played, you know, with a, a little girl my age, you know, two doors down, who had sort of a fabulous doll collection. I really wanted her American Girl doll, and her father had a gun, and we knew where it was. But uh, otherwise, you know, not really. I, I do remember the first time I think I, I really thought about the National Rifle Association was when I was a teenager. And someone I knew said that what he really wanted for his 18th birthday was a membership to the NRA. And I don't remember if he was talking about sort of an annual membership, which costs, you know, now it's, I think it's $45 a year or a lifetime membership, which is about $1,000 and apparently is a very popular birthday present, you know, for you know, a father to give his son when his son turns 18 and is old enough to have a gun. Yeah, so he becomes a man and gets a gun and joins the NRA. Yeah, it gives you sort of a, a special membership card and you get a subscription to the NRA magazine and sort of emotional bond to the organization. And that's also, there's a, well, I suppose maybe it doesn't need normalizing, but there's a normalizing effect to that. It's guns are a normal part of life and that it's the, it's the, you give them as presents. I mean, it's something you say in your piece is that, the sales this year are already high, and that hasn't even taken Christmas into account. So the idea that everyone sitting around the Christmas tree and opening their presents and out come all the guns seems... But that, that's a sort of ordinary ritual. It definitely varies by region. 
which is why I think, you know, a lot of American families like mine can, can be in a bubble where, you know, it'd be unimaginable to have a gun under the tree. Whereas, you know, for hundreds of thousands of families, it would be common. You know, we're in different realities. So, I mean, the NRA is now largely a lobbying organization as well as a money raising organization. But that isn't how it began. Yeah. So um, I recently rewatched the, the Michael Moore documentary, Bowling for Columbine, because I realized that I'd had a, a misapprehension, which Frank Smith talks about in his new book, The NRA, The Unauthorized History, which is Michael Moore doesn't explicitly say that there was a connection between the NRA and the Ku Klux Klan, but he certainly implies it, um, you know, that the two were founded around the same time, you know, right after the, the end of the Civil War. But actually, the, the founding of the NRA was really pretty benign. It was former Union Army soldiers who were dismayed by how poorly they thought Americans knew how to shoot. There's a great line from General Burnside that says maybe one out of 10 soldiers in the war could shoot the wide side of a barn. And these veterans, they were New Yorkers and they were grandees. There was an overlap between trustees at the NRA and trustees of the Metropolitan Museum of Art and the zoo. And they were really looking forward to a future in which they thought Americans were going to be drawn in to a European war. And they thought Americans were going to be outmatched, particularly by Prussians who had superior rear-loading rifles. And what they wanted was for America to have its own version of the NRA. Britain had established a National Rifle Association of its own in the 1850s. And that still exists, doesn't it? The British NRA in its small way. Still exists and has absolutely no relationship with its namesake. And it, it goes to great pains to remind people that they have no relationship. Yeah, Although uh, we have much more gun control, obviously, in it when there have been mass shootings in the UK that after Hungerford in 1987 and after Dunblane, that much stricter gun control laws were introduced quite easily. But of course, at the same time, there's something that's in the news at the moment that the, the social distancing rules, you can't meet in groups of larger than six. But if you're grouse shooting, you can so that it isn't true that gun owners in the UK don't have their own special exemptions. So that's how it, so if it began after the Civil War and the idea that Americans needed to learn how to shoot rifles so they could, you know, which then presumably up to a point it worked because they then won two world wars. But when, when did it become sort of in its modern incarnation as the, the lobbying group? And was that, was that since the Second World War? There was a split in the NRA um, that, that comes sort of during the Cold War. And you have members who thought the organization should move away. It had been, you know, on the East Coast. It should move to Colorado Springs and devote itself to, you know, gun safety and marksmanship, conservation issues, since a lot of gun owners, you know, were hunters and they wanted the woods. And then there were the hardliners who thought the role of the NRA increasingly should be to lobby government. So these days, it tends to be that the NRA, after there's been a mass shooting, that the NRA, after a decent interval, will start talking about guns don't kill people, people kill people. And, and the moments when their, their work, their lobbying work needs to be done. But 50, 60 years ago, it wasn't mass shootings, but 
but assassinations is that right that the after JFK and, and Martin Luther King, that there was talk about greater gun control. So John F. Kennedy was assassinated by the sort of cheap surplus Italian infantry rifle um, that had been purchased from the back pages of the NRA's you know, own magazine, um, American Rifleman. And there was an outcry. And even the NRA's had sort of accepted that maybe, you know, mail order purchases of guns should be limited. It was a different organization then. And they didn't even really push back when Kennedy's successor, Lyndon Johnson, you know, was trying to pass the Gun Control Act of 1968. And, and is that when the, the the question of background checks began to be introduced? And that, I mean, so before 1968, anyone could order a, a gun out of the back of the NRA magazine, as Lee Harvey Oswald did. Exactly. I mean, there had always been gun control in the US, which you, you wouldn't always know from listening to the NRA. You know, th- there's been good scholarship on how even in the Wild West, there, there was gun control that newcomers would often have to hand over their guns to you know, more established members of the community. Though often to listen to NRA speeches, you would think, yeah, th- this had not been the case. And in your piece, you say that 60% of people in the US support gun control. But of course, I suppose what's the question, what, what, does, what does gun control mean? It obviously doesn't mean banning all guns in the, the, or even at the level that they're banned in the UK. Exactly. And what's tricky is that gun control definitely means different things to different people and has meant different things at different times. So, you know, it, it can encompass anything from saying that the age at which someone should be able to buy a gun should be raised from 18 to 21, which some states have started doing um, in the wake of you know, the Parkland shooting, for instance. It can mean trying to prevent certain kinds of gun from being sold, automatic weapons, semi-automatic weapons. It can mean taxing guns. It can mean preventing whether someone can carry a gun openly or only concealed or vice versa. But no one, you know, in the mainstream political parties seems to be calling for anything like the kind of gun regulation we have in the UK. Yeah. And that would, it would be impossible. And also, well, there's the question of the Second Amendment, isn't it? And, the, you know, and having to change that. So for the purposes of a whatever, well-ordered militia, people have the right to, to bear arms. But the framers of the Constitution didn't have machine guns in mind because they didn't know they existed. Yeah, so the, the former NRA officers had, in massive letters, a quote from the Second Amendment, the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. You know, of course, they left out the first clause. And what, what I find interesting, that this is written about really well in Adam Winkler's book, Gunfight, is that before 1959, there were very few articles, sort of law review articles at all written about the Second Amendment. It was considered a really boring area of constitutional law. It was just widely accepted that the Second Amendment was merely about protecting state militias from being disarmed by the government. And then really starting, you know, in the 1980s, suddenly you have hundreds of articles and newspaper op-eds and they're overwhelmingly arguing that the Second Amendment guarantees individual rights. And, you know, what we, we know now is that 
the National Rifle Association primarily, also a few other libertarian groups, were funding scholars to write these articles that they were. And, you know, the way it works in the United States is that, you know, law reviews are run by, by law students. You know, Barack Obama was president of the Harvard Law Review when he was a student. And they, they publish based on what they're given. If the only articles coming in are ones that take a certain line on the Second Amendment, you can shift the conversation. And indeed, when, you know, this big Second Amendment case 10 years ago made it way to the Supreme Court, the majority opinion by Justice Scalia relied on those articles. And there are other cases, but one of the things about the legal case that you make clear is that if the IRA, excuse me, (laughs) IRA, if the NRA appears to be winning, then its funding drops and and it's quite an important part of it. And of course, it fits with its rhetoric that they need to appear to be or to, or I mean, they like to feel to be, they like to appear to be embattled and on the defensive, because in a sense, that's the whole argument is we need guns in order to defend ourselves from, from the bad guys. And isn't there at least one case that they didn't want to go all the way to the Supreme Court, because if they were to win, then their position would be so much stronger that they would then worry that donations would drop? Yeah, this is the Heller case. And it's interesting. It was, a, you know, the, the NRA ultimately did provide an amicus brief and took credit when the case was decided their way. This was a case that, you know, decided only five to four that Americans, you know, do have a right to defend themselves with guns in their own home outside of a militia. And what's interesting about this case is that the, the lawyer who brought it has said that he faced so much resistance from the NRA to bringing it to the Supreme Court. You know, it was a case that was really developed from the beginning through appeals. And that it wasn't that the NRA thought that another case would be stronger or that if the Heller case lost, it would create bad precedent. But but they knew, and, and it is true, that their funding goes way down when they have a victory. And Trump in the White House, who's been you know this great ally of the NRA, has meant a funding drop that's led to layoffs. It meant they had less money to spend in the midterm elections and Almost certainly they're going to spend less money in this election cycle. Yeah, that's complicated, isn't it? So the more they, they win, the... Yeah, it's, it's a peculiar business model. Yeah. Well, the interesting thing is that, that the NRA don't invariably back Republic, Republican candidates, do they? That there are sometimes, there have been races where they've backed, backed a Democrat and... Yeah, so I, I first became really interested in the NRA four years ago when I became pathologically obsessed with a particular Missouri governor race. And I, I've written about this race for the LRB. The, the Republican nominee was a former Navy SEAL who, in his advertising, you know, would show himself using heavy artillery. He said that, you know, the first thing he wanted to do as governor of Missouri would be to change the law so that people could carry guns into the state capitol. Um, in Jefferson City, Missouri, which hadn't been allowed. And I thought for sure the NRA would back him. You know, one thing the NRA does that's very popular is they rate all candidates. You get a grade F to A+. And they gave Eric Reitens, this Republican, the best rating you could get for someone who had never held office. He filled out a questionnaire 
in a way that the NRA thought was great. But in this race, they actually backed the Democrat because the Democrat had held office before and had a voting record that the NRA approved of. And the NRA wanted to go with the sure thing. So they didn't run attack ads against the Republican, but they made it clear that the Democrat was their preferred candidate. But the Republican won. The Republican won. And did, did, he, did he allow change the law to allow guns to be taken into the... He did. He did, okay. Yeah. He, so, he made good on his promise. Yeah, I mean, it's... It's less common now than it used to be that the NRA would back a Democrat. It, I mean, it used to be the case, yeah, that they would routinely back Democrats over Republican. But it's really hardened, particularly in the last few years. So to go back to that, when you mentioned the, the historical split, where there was some, I suppose, a minority of members who thought that the NRA should move its move from the East Coast to Colorado Springs and focus more on co- conservation and hunting and not be lobbying in Washington anymore. And there's a sort of interesting counterfactual history. Imagine if, if that had happened, how America might be different. But that strain, of course, that idea of the rural and independent and self-reliant American is, is where a lot of the, sort of the idea of the, the right to have guns comes from. Because I've been reading the Laura Ingalls Wilder books of my daughter. And one of the really interesting things in that is where the absolute obsession on doing everything the family doing everything themselves and not borrowing anything from anyone. And even when they, they're building a house and they have to borrow some nails from a neighbour. And when Pa's hammering the nails into the, into the planks of wood to make the roof, if he drops one, the girls have to hunt it out in the grass because every single nail is that precious. And in that world, sort of in that pioneering idea that his, and Pa's gun is like the most important thing in the house and it hangs over the door and it's there to defend them and it's also and rereading that because as a child I didn't notice it at all but rereading that now you kind of see have some sense of how the idea of gun ownership is tied up with manifest destiny and the American West and that fantasy except of course it doesn't have anything really to do with nobody lives like that anymore so it's I mean people try to or pretend they do but it's a uh, it's deeply anachronistic, isn't it? And of course, you've you've written about you know far more about Laura Ingalls Wilder than I do, and you've you've written about her in the NRB and the way that her daughter edited and rewrote those books. But they are these they are a fantasy version of American history, and that those fantasies of American history are something that the those narratives that the NRA is very good at tapping into, isn't it? And they tell a, a series of, as it were, almost fantasy versions of of history, um, and the one that they present themselves as their history is, is defending allowing black black people to defend themselves against the the Ku Klux Klan and, and present themselves as these great defenders of, of minorities. Yeah, and, so even though the NRA's actual history I think is, you know, far from embarrassing, let's teach Americans how to use guns safely. What's interesting is how they, they have different stories about their founding. So if you go to their website, there's an account of their history that's, you know, pretty close to the actual received history. But then in NRA conventions, and I've also seen clips from, you know, Fox and Friends, certain NRA board members and NRA members will give an account of the NRA's history that is very different. In, in this version of history, the NRA was, yes, founded by Union Army veterans, but it's America's oldest civil rights organization. And what they really wanted to do was to go south during Reconstruction and protect black people from the KKK. 
And you know, yes, the Klan would try to disarm black people, particularly black veterans who'd held on to their guns, but there's no evidence that their NRA, you know, at all was involved in going against the Klan. There was a new book, Warped Narratives, um, by Melissa Mary that came out in January this year. I was sorry that I wasn't able to refer to it in my piece, but she talks about how, you know, on both sides of the gun control debate, people refer to, you know, atypical characters and settings so that people who are most interested in reforming gun laws and making them stricter do like to talk about mass shootings, particularly in benign settings in schools and malls and churches. We maybe focus more than we should on atypical victims, on children, possibly more on white children than black children. And then on the NRA side, they prefer to focus on sort of justifiable self-defense shootings. The NRA line would be, you know, we don't have statistics on the number of rapes and assaults and murders that are prevented because someone brandishes a gun. And they argue that the media doesn't fairly cover those cases. Yeah, and as they said, numbers, is it 200 people a year are killed in mass shootings, something like that in the US, but 38,000 people a year die from gun violence. And a lot of those are suicides, some of them are accidents. So, And this is, doesn't get talked about nearly so much, does it? Certainly not. And you, you get the feeling that the NRA divides gun owners between criminals and non-criminals, and that the two never meet. There's no conception that a law-abiding person could buy a gun and then use it against himself or a partner. You know, the idea is that people only ever buy guns to protect themselves from the criminals who would be able to get guns, whether they were legal or not. And it's a bizarrely essentializing idea of the criminal, that a criminal is, there is a criminal type, that there are criminals who are criminal. It's not that anyone becomes a criminal when they commit a crime. It's the idea that there are the law abiding and the... Yeah, exactly. It reminds me of you know, my, my child's conception of, or at least mine, was you know, there are bad guys and that they identify as bad guys. And that's exactly the language they use, isn't it? That, that thing that the, um, the current president or the former president, that the only thing that... Yeah, this is... Wayne LaPierre, that the only thing that stops a bad guy with a gun is a good guy with a gun. And of course, the question, of the, I mean, when they talk about the number of crimes that we, the uncountable number of prevented crimes because someone has a gun. I mean, that's a bit like the, you know, the man walks into a room with a bizarre backpack on and someone says, Tim, what's that? And he says, oh, it's my, my elephant repelling machine. And he says, well, why do you have that? There aren't any elephants here. And he says, well, exactly, doesn't it work well? But I mean, you can make comparisons with other countries where, such as the UK, where it's very hard to own or carry a gun. And the homicide rate in the UK is much lower. But those sorts of arguments presumably don't, don't wash with the, with the NRA. Yeah, well, if you read a, a book by Dana Lash, who's a former NRA spokeswoman who's written a book about gun control, Britain is actually awash in horrible gun crimes because law-abiding people can't defend themselves. And they also claim that the reason some countries, Scandinavian, have less gun crime than the U.S. is because those countries are more homogenous than the U.S. And they don't quite define what they mean. I think but everyone, everyone understands what they mean. It, it's um, code. Yeah. Yeah. 
Although, I mean, having said that, I mean, it's important for Europeans not to feel too superior about it, since quite a lot of the lobbying also comes from manufacturers. And many of those manufacturers are, in fact, European, aren't they? That Beretta and... Yeah, so a quarter of the guns in the US were actually made in Europe. So, yeah, Austria's Glock, Germany's Six Hour, Beretta. And, you know, the NRA doesn't quite disclose how much money exactly they've received from corporate partners, but we know that it's at least a million dollars each for Six Hour, Glock, Beretta, because they're all in the golden ring of freedom, which is how the NRA honors groups that have given a lot of money. And they also spend... $5 $5 million to $10 million a year advertising in NRA publications. And the, the NRA also works abroad. You know, they've worked with gun rights groups in Australia, Canada, and Bolsonaro's Brazil. And, you know, it's European countries making products they could never sell to their own citizens. And they're trying to defend their most important market. I think in Croatia, you know, more than 90% of the guns they make, you know, are just exported straight to the United States. And that money that the NRA raises, how does it, how do they spend it? Is it mostly on political advertising or donations? Or how, how does that all that money get spent? What's interesting to me is I think for years, I assumed that the NRA's power came from spending in political campaigns. And what we've learned is that actually, they're usually not at all a main donor they spend, you know, often, you know, maybe $10,000 on a congressional race, a, maybe an average of $30,000 for a Senate race. But their real power comes from, you know, their influence, that they're able to mobilize, you know, millions of voters. They, they spend their money widely um, and also on themselves. So a, a new book just came out, I think, this week in the United States called um, Inside the NRA. It's a tell-all um, by a man called Joshua Powell, who'd been second in command at the NRA. And it's an a, account that sort of complements this recent lawsuit brought in New York State by the attorney general that just you know shows how well NRA executives treat themselves. You know, it's an, a, the, the New York lawsuit is just this account of lives well-lived, you know, private jets and limousines, hotel stays, we know from whistleblowers that Wayne LaPierre spends hundreds of thousands of dollars on his wardrobe. We know from the lawsuit that, you know, at least his wife is alleged to have spent tens of thousands of dollars, all charged to the NRA on hair and makeup. And and there are more more of those kinds of stories in the in Powell's book, are there? Yeah, I mean, you, you get the the sense of, um, you know, he, he describes feeling a little guilty. He knew that donors were sending forty five dollars a year thinking it was going straight, you know, to advocacy and that, you know, wouldn't, you know, cover his one night of drinking, you know, on the NRA's tab. Um, but he, he left under a cloud, didn't he? Yeah, the, the NRA um, had had to settle sexual harassment suits on his behalf. And he was accused of, you know, also charging personal expenses, and nepotism, you know, that I think both his father and his wife had NRA jobs. I mean, you can see reading his memoir, how how much of a closed shop it would be that people were always sort of finding well-paid jobs for friends and family, which he explains as, look, nobody wants to work for the NRA and friends and family are the people you can trust. And how how has his book been received by the 
by the organization. I mean, I think he's persona non grata. He's seen as, you know, someone with an axe to grind. Deborah Friedel, thank you very much. Thank you, Tom. You can read Deborah's piece on the NRA on our website now. The rest of the issue will go up online tomorrow, and physical copies will go on sale and reach subscribers soon after that. Other pieces in the issue include Jenny Turner on the women's liberation movement and Malcolm Gaskell on leaving academia. And Deborah Friedel's pieces on the governor of Missouri and Laura Ingalls Wilder, and many other subjects, are available in our online archive. There are links to them on the page for this podcast. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. Hi, I'm Jesse Cruikshank. Jesse Cruikshank. I host the number one comedy podcast called Phone a Friend. Girl, let's phone a friend. Not only do I break down the biggest stories in pop culture with guests like Dan Levy and members of InSync, I do it with my own personal boy band singing jingles throughout. Because it's my show. It's your show, girl. New episodes of Phone a Friend. Yeah. Drop Thursdays wherever you get your podcasts. So work it, girl. Yeah, work it. Okay, that's enough. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com. <laughs>